0: Welcome to Nationwide Market Insights for September 16th, 2022. With us today is Deputy Chief Economist of Nationwide, Brian Jordan. Thank you for joining us today, Brian. A lot of economic data was released this week. Brian, can you give our audience a recap of this week's inflation news?
1: Yes, it was a full week of inflation news. We had statistics that were all over the map this week. We could probably intro this podcast with some music from Ennio Morricone, because this was <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to inflation statistics. We'll start on the good side. We did have some, some good inflation news this week. Producer prices, core producer prices. These are prices at early stages of production, wholesale prices, wholesale costs, up by just 0.2%. In August, continuing a slowing trend in recent months. Also on the good side, we had the import price numbers for August. They came out as uh, just a few hours before we recorded this conversation. They were down again. We had um, overall import prices falling in August, down by one percent. We had core non-petroleum import prices falling by zero point two percent. So a continued decline in those prices. Uh, But on the bad side, we saw some of the manufacturing numbers this week, the regional manufacturing surveys, uh, the Philadelphia Fed um, outlook numbers for September, the New York Fed outlook numbers for September. Their prices paid numbers came down, so moving in the right direction, but still elevated. So the Philadelphia Fed prices paid index for September, for example, coming in at 29.8. That's a big decline from 43.6 in August, but still in in elevated numbers, still still a relatively high number from a historical perspective. Very similarly, the New York Fed, the Empire State Manufacturing Survey, this is also for September, so uh, real-time numbers here. The prices paid number coming in at 39.6. That's down from 55.5 in August, but still, again, an elevated number. So not a great number, but moving in in the right direction. So that's the good and the bad. And then we had uh, most conspicuously the ugly, and that was the Consumer Price Index. Um, And this is the definitive, this is the most popular inflation metric, the CPI for August. Overall, CPI was up by just 0.1% because energy prices were down but mostly because energy prices were down last month, but the core CPI was up by 0.6%. That was stronger than expected, stronger than the increase in the prior month, and it was a broad-based increase. The median CPI was up by 0.7%. So we can't pin this on just one or two metrics within the CPI, it was a broad-based pickup. So We had a little bit of everything this week on the inflation front, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it tells us that we're still seeing uh, a lot of cross-currents in terms of price pressures.
0: That's a great tie-in to that movie. I think maybe after this uh, podcast is recorded, I might throw that into the, uh, the the old VCR. Watch that one tonight. Thanks for that right there. As we look closer at all the data, how it all ties together, What does it tell you about the direction of our economy? And what does it say about the state of inflation today?
1: So we're clearly seeing some lingering inflation. The inflation that took hold in 2021 is still with us. In some cases, it's accelerating or has accelerated in in recent months. And it certainly has broadened. I mentioned that increase in the median CPI, up by 0.7% in August. That's the biggest increase in the median component within the consumer price index report in this cycle. So even as we were seeing big gains in the overall CPI last year, earlier this year, we never had as broad of a gain as we saw last month. At the same time, again, we're seeing some signs that inflation is beginning to cool a bit. Didn't see it so much in the core consumer price index last month. But there were some individual components that showed declines last month. Airfares were down. Used car prices were down. I mentioned energy earlier. Energy prices were down. So in some ways, what we're seeing right now is the flip side of the early stages of this inflation run. We started on this inflationary episode back in early 2021. And in the early days of this inflationary period, It was a very narrowly driven pickup, categories like used cars, energy, airfares, um, categories that were influenced by the pandemic, influenced by the the, the drumbeat of war eventually in Eastern Europe, uh, were pushing the CPI higher. The median CPI was well-behaved though, for the most part well-behaved early last year. Now we're seeing the flip side of that. Some of those categories that were driven higher, idiosyncratic factors are now beginning to come down, especially as, as the pandemic continues to fade. But we're seeing a broader inflation that's proving a little bit more difficult to loosen.
0: I mean, we know that the pandemic shut down so many factories, lumber yards, uh, meat packing plants, so many other businesses for a very long time. That had to put a strain on the supply chain and was probably a major contributor to the higher than normal inflation we've seen but it's been a few years, so have we fully recovered from that yet?
1: In some sense, yes. Uh, In some sense, we have recovered, um, or we are recovering. We very much are recovering. We haven't fully recovered yet. So one metric we can look to is the New York Fed's Global Supply Chain Pressure Index. That's a mouthful, but it's an aggregation of a number of different measures that look at supply chain pressures. And it's measured on a standard deviation basis. So if the New York Fed supply chain index is one, that means supply chain pressures are one standard deviation above the norm. If the number is negative one, supply chain pressures are one standard deviation below the norm, lesser supply chain pressures the normal in that case well currently this index is at 1.47 indicating that supply chain pressures overall were 1.47 standard deviations above the norm that's pretty high and in fact these numbers go back to the 1990s and prior to the pandemic the only time they were higher than they are today this index was higher than it is today, was in the immediate aftermath of the Fukushima nuclear disaster in Japan in 2011. That was a very brief run um, above the current level. Other than that, it's always been below, at least in the pre-pandemic period, below this level. This is still a, a big improvement though. 1.47 is a long way from 4.31, which was the peak late last year, so we've seen quite an improvement. And we've seen that in a lot of other statistics as well. Industrial production, for example, is at an all-time high right now. Uh, So in other words, industrial production has fully recovered its recessionary losses. Semiconductor production, at least in the U.S., has fully recovered its pandemic and recessionary losses. Motor vehicle production even. Uh, we had a decline last month, but motor vehicle production fully recovered its pandemic um, and recessionary decline. So we've made great strides. We're moving clearly in the in the right direction. We haven't come full circle yet. We are recovering. We haven't had a full recovery just yet.
0: Well, some of the things I remember from seeing the pandemic was that there was pent up demand and people had money that was given to them by the government or they they the ones that did have paychecks coming in. There was a lot of people that were spending things and they were wanting to buy things and that seemed to lead towards higher demand. And right now we're watching the Fed try to slow down the economy just to get inflation in check. So a lot of people are asking, why can't the government help increase supply? to meet the rise in consumer demand instead of slowing down the economy?
1: It's a great question and and the government has tried a a few initiatives and is trying a few initiatives to increase supply. We recently had the signing of the CHIPS Act, uh, which allocates over $50 billion in incentives for semiconductor production. We had the Inflation Reduction Act, which allocates funding um, and incentives for both traditional and non-traditional energy production. So there have been some initiatives in this direction, but it is uh, unfortunately much more difficult and less efficient to boost the supply side than it is to curtail the the demand side. I, um, I mentioned the CHIPS Act we have a, a big plant going up in our backyard, our company's backyard in central Ohio, an Intel plant that's benefiting from, from the CHIPS Act. Um, we recently had a groundbreaking of that facility but it's unlikely we're going to see actual semiconductors being produced from that facility until 2025. So there's a long lead time here in boosting production. We know that the legislative process is is not easy. It's often compared to to sausage making. Uh, To get a piece of fiscal legislation passed, you need the White House to agree, you need the Senate to agree, you need the House of Representatives to agree. Not always easy, especially in, in these days. Whereas the Fed can operate much more efficiently to, again, curtail demand. The Fed can change interest rate policy not only at every FOMC meeting, each of the eight FOMC meetings per year, but the Fed can change policy at any time in between meetings. And while there is a lag for the full impact of monetary policy to hit the economy, some impacts are very immediate. The Fed changes monetary policy, or even hints that it's going to change monetary policy. And that impacts the financial markets. And the financial markets, in turn, have an impact on the real economy. Uh, We've already seen this year uh, a very nearly real-time impact from Fed interest rate policy on the housing market. So The Fed changes short-term interest rates. That ripples through to longer-term interest rates. That impacts mortgage rates. That impacts housing demand impacts construction, impacts construction employment. You get a feedback loop that, that happens there. And so the Fed does have some real-time immediate impacts. And so it's much more efficient. So unfortunately, we're going to see the Fed continue to apply to this path. Uh, we're going to continue to see the Fed uh, attempt to bring demand down to calibrate with what J Powell terms "Quote unquote available supply. Supplies have been curtailed by the pandemic, by the war to a certain degree. Uh, the Fed is attempting to to calibrate demand to those current to that current supply backdrop.
0: You mentioned the Fed, and they're going to be meeting as we record in this podcast. We know that next week they're going to be meeting uh, for their September meeting. And uh, just to our audience." Brian and our senior economist Ben Ayers will be having a podcast next week in reaction to what the Fed's going to announce, which should probably be another uh, increase in rates. So we'll see what happens and stay tuned for that one. And so, Brian, as you look at the economy more broadly, do you see any signs of moderating price pressures anywhere else?
1: We do. You know, It was said back in uh, the 1990s, the early 1990s at least, that – you could see the computer revolution everywhere except in the productivity statistics. I think we can take the framework of that sentence and say today that we can see disinflation just about everywhere except in the CPI statistics. Um, the CPI, of course, the headline, the most popular metric of inflation, at least at the core level, continues to show very hot uh, price pressures, very pronounced price pressures. But in many other statistics, many other indicators, we are seeing signs of moderating price pressures. I mentioned the producer price index earlier, the core producer price index, which excludes food and energy and also also margins in that measure. Um, We had a very soft uh, 0.2% increase last month. We're up by just 2.7% annualized over the last three months. That compares to 7.6% over the prior three months. Uh, Rents in the CPI, owner's equivalent rent, um, which is a measure of imputed rents, a hypothetical rent for owner-occupied housing, rents have been very strong recently, up by 0.7% last month, 0.6% in in July. But actual rents, as measured by apartment list, apartments.com, Zillow, um, have shown signs of slowing recently. Uh, as an example, apartment lists um, rent numbers are up by a little bit over 7% so far this year through August, versus a nearly 15% gain at this same time in 2021. Now a 7.2% gain through the first eight months of the year, is still a very big increase, but it's a significant deceleration from where we were in in the prior year. And on a sequential basis, month to month, we've seen uh, continued slowdown in recent months. Wages, even wages are at least showing signs of flattening, or wage growth at least is showing signs of flattening. Wages are running a little bit over 5% Year over year, but the recent numbers have been a little bit uh, below five percent in terms of of the run rate, and so we're at least seeing some some flattening out. There, commodity prices have fallen, um, led of course by by energy prices. Transportation prices have fallen as back as backlogs have have declined so we're seeing some widespread signs of disinflation it just hasn't manifest itself so much in the core cpi statistics just yet it's likely only a matter of time though before it does
0: well another measurement that we want to look at too is the the role of the dollar which has increased this year by 13 percent due in part by the rising interest rates so, what should we look for here? So, first, we should put this
1: increase into context. A big increase uh, this year in in the dollar. We still have three and a half months uh, to go in in the year. The biggest increase historically in the dollar, at least in the the post Bretton Woods area, dating back to the early nineteen seventies, was an increase of just under sixteen percent in the early 1980s. So there's a real chance we're gonna see the biggest annual increase in the dollar in history, at least in modern history, since the Bretton Woods era came to, to an end about 50 50 years ago. This is, a, this is a sizable increase. And it's important from an inflation standpoint because imports account for nearly 20% of GDP. And a rising dollar, of course, lowers the price of imports. Raises the price of exports. That's also a, a, a disinflationary driver, an indirect disinflationary driver. But it lowers the price of imports. I mentioned the import price numbers, the recent import price numbers earlier. We just got, uh, just before we taped this episode of the podcast, uh, a few hours ago, we got the uh, the import price numbers for for August, showed another decline. Headline import prices were down by 1%. Last month, core import prices were down by 0.2 percent, and thanks to that rising dollar, core import prices—these are non-petroleum import prices—have declined for four straight months. Um, we have we've had uh, declines dating back to May of this year, and so the rising dollar is a disinflationary trend. It's a it's a reflection of tighter financial conditions. It, again, raises the price of exports, which obviously could impact employment and, and um, export-dependent industries here in, in the U.S. That's a disinflationary driver. But it's a direct disinflationary driver because it reduces the price of imports, and we're seeing that play out here over
0: the last several months. So, Brian, I know there's a lot of different reasons why inflation happens. Can you share with our audience some examples of some Cyclical or structural inflationary drivers of inflation?
1: Yes, we can we can think of any economic phenomenon as being driven by a combination of cyclical, structural, and idiosyncratic factors. In terms of inflation, the cyclical drivers are the labor market and monetary policy and the underlying rate of of economic growth. Those things are mostly pointing in the upward direction right now. The labor market is very tight. Underlying economic growth is healthy. And even though the Fed has been raising rates recently, raising rates aggressively recently, monetary policy acts with a lag or has its full impact with a lag. And so we're still seeing some of the benefits from the very supportive monetary policies the Fed had in in place in 2021 and early 2022. From a structural perspective, most of the forces are pushing down on inflation. Those long term drivers, those decade by decade drivers of inflation, are mostly pointing downward. Uh, The Federal Reserve has a 2% inflation target. The Federal Reserve has a lot of credibility. Federal Reserve monetary policy has probably gotten better over time as well, partly because the Fed has better economic statistics than it did. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. So it's able to be more responsive to shifts in in the economy. And also the the economy is much more technologically adept than it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And that improves efficiency, pushes down on inflation. So we've got cyclical forces that are pushing inflation higher. We've got long-term structural forces that are pushing inflation lower The wild card is the wild card in this case, and those are the idiosyncratic factors. These are the factors like weather events or geopolitical events, or in this case, the pandemic, that can spring up out of nowhere and drive these numbers higher or lower. In this case, the idiosyncratic factors, the pandemic and the war, have driven inflation higher. We can say with some confidence, though, that those events will eventually go away. We're already seeing the pandemic fading, of course, at least in terms of its impact on the economy. And we'll see a much more normal inflationary backdrop in which we have cyclical factors and structural factors driving
0: these inflation rates. Well, Brian, thank you for that insight. We're going to go and wrap up today's podcast on that note there. But to our audience, join Brian and Ben as we have our next podcast where we react to what the fed announces at their september meeting next week so make sure you subscribe so you can be notified when each new episode is released so thanks again brian and to our audience thank you for listening this is brian kirk for nationwide market insights the information provided by nationwide economics is general in nature and not intended as investment or economic advice or a recommendation to buy yourself any security or adopt any investment strategy Additionally, it does not take into account any specific investment objectives, tax or financial condition, or particular needs of any specific person. The economic and market forecasts reflect our opinion as of the date of this report and are subject to change without notice. These forecasts show a broad range of possible outcomes. Because they are subject to high levels of uncertainty, they will not reflect actual performance. We obtain certain information from sources deemed reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, completeness, or fairness. Nationwide and the Nationwide N and Eagle are service marks of the Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company. Copyright 2022. Nationwide.